Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Lindsay Davis has had a long and celebrated career as the creator of the Falco and Flavia Albia mysteries set in ancient Rome. But when she started out, publishers weren't interested in the period. Nobody, they told her, wanted to read about ancient Rome. She persevered, brought ancient Rome to life, and created a whole new subgenre in popular fiction with lots of authors who followed in her footsteps. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Lindsay talks about her remarkable series, first with 20 Falco books, and now with eight books in a follow-up series with a female investigator, Flavia Albia. We've got the latest in the series, three ebook copies of The Grove of the Caesars, featuring a serial killer. Yes, they did have serial killers in those days, to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on the Joys of Binge Reading website or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. We'll have links to Lindsay's books and website on thejoysofbingereading.com. Drop by and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our readers. We love to hear from our listeners. But now, here's Lindsay. Hello there, Lindsay, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased that you've asked me. It's lovely to have contact with New Zealand. And you're sitting in Birmingham, so that's um, the I'm people... I'm in Birmingham in England, yes. The real Birmingham, the first Birmingham. Lindsay, you've had a long and celebrated career as an author, but people always like to know where you got started. You had 13 years as a civil servant before you started with your writing, didn't you? I did, and I think it's important. I, I think you need to have a job, another job, although some people do go straight into writing. But I think like like teachers and vicars are always better if they've done a different job first. The same goes for writers because you have to know what it's like to wake up in the dark and think you've got to go out on public transport to some terrible office to do a job that you hate. If you're going to impose something like that on your characters, it's it's simply a matter of experience. And you have to gather information about life, so you might as well have a real job while you're doing it. Yeah. So now you've got a great backlist of mysteries set in ancient Rome, 20 in the Falco series, and now you've just published the eighth Flavia Albia book, The Grove yeah. of the Caesars. So why did you migrate from Birmingham to ancient Rome? (laughs) Well, it was via the English Civil War, because when I was about 14, I wanted to write a novel about my hometown. And the most exciting thing that I knew of that had happened then was um, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, the dastard but handsome, came and attacked our city because we were very left wing and making swords for the parliament and he was on the king's side. And I was I was taken along by my dad in my school uniform to the reference library where I read up the 17th century pamphlet. Nothing much came of that because I was only 14 and that's much too early to start, really. But I kept the idea 
for years and years. And when, when I was writing or starting to write, I wanted to write about the Civil War, but nobody would buy that. And that's when I thought I must have a different product then. And the product I came up with was the Romans. But I never gave up on my Civil War idea and did eventually write a really long novel. Yeah, great. Falco was something new in his time. He was a spoof gumshoe in the ancient world. You brought those two ideas together of ancient Rome and the gumshoe investigator. How did that come about? Well, um, partly because I think Rummies, as we call ourselves, are a bit jokey like that. We're not, we're not as famous for our sense of humour as Glaswegians and Cockneys, but we do have a very dry sense of humour and, and original ideas appeal to us. And also, I, I naively thought that a new writer should try to be original. So first of all, I picked on this period of the Romans because nobody else was writing about the Romans or writing fiction about the Romans. When you, when you look at what's available now, it's almost impossible to imagine what time that was when there was nobody writing popular fiction in the ancient world. And it was very hard to get a publisher, in fact. Most of the main London publishers said no to my first efforts. But it was the city that drew me for writing, you asked me, you asked me about how I married the idea of the gumshoe, was the city that really drew me to it because I felt it offered a colourful, often struggling background where that kind of a gumshoe could flourish. Yeah, yeah. Flavia, who is the one that features in the Grove of the Caesars, is Balco's adopted daughter. And the story of how Balco found her makes up the plot of one of the earlier Balco books. And unusually, she is English. And so one of the Balco books, he goes to England in ancient Rome times and brings back this adopted daughter, which is a lovely little touch in itself. So she's now an adult and she's taken on the same job as her father, which is the role of the informer in Roman society. Tell us a little bit about that role, the informer. Yes, I, I should say that when I first started writing about Falco, I would have loved to have had a female lead, but I felt that introducing the public to Rome was enough and that to have a female lead in ancient Rome would have been one step too far. But now, now I'm more confident about it and more sure of the ro role of women, really. Informers were very much despised. They were right down with gladiators and prostitutes and were surveyed by the vigiles as undesirable characters. And this is because they spied on people and then prosecuted them, in, in most cases, for money. And that was seen as very reprehensible. Bad emperors used them a lot to spy on people so that they could get the people's estates by finding them guilty of crimes that they possibly hadn't even committed. So at the time when we first meet Falco, which is just after the reign of one of the really bad emperors, Nero, that's very much in the public mind. And there's a lot of tension between Falco and the emperor Vespasian because Vespasian is supposed to despise informers, but he needs Falco, who acts as a kind of imperial agent. 
when when we come on to Flavia Albia, basically her job is slightly different. She's just finding information for people, mainly women, because that's easier for her to do. She sorts out legacies for them. She finds birth certificates for them. She's a kind of researcher more than a fighting agent on the street. But she does also deal with major cases, some of which involve serial killers. Yes, and the growing of the seas is actually, you do have a serial killer there. Now, the serial killer idea, in quotes, is a modern concept. But, of course, the pathology goes back to the birth of time. Indeed. And if if you think that people carry the possibility I don't have it in their genes although not everyone who has that kind of a gene will become a serial killer but the possibility is there it must always have been there right back to the caves so this is perfectly feasible and in fact the very first story where we meet Flavia Albia is based on a reference in one of the Roman historians to someone who was killing people by using poisoned needles on the streets and that quite clearly happened more than once and was a serial killer. Mm, mm. You've got an interesting story about how you conceived the idea for this book. (laughs) You were on holiday somewhere weren't you? Yes I I was in Sicily um, in the south of Italy on an archaeological tour as a participant and we were going to see somewhere called the Capella Palatina which was in the evening and before when we arrived there was a function already there just finishing so the organizers put us in the gardens outside which were basically not supposed to be open to the public so there weren't very many lights and it was twilight and very gloomy and mysterious and you couldn't see people what they were really up to and it suddenly struck me that that would be a good setting for um a murderer in a in a grove of trees, and that became the Grove of the Caesars. Though mm. so it's, it's a book where I am also talking about I'm talking about the concept of serial killers, and possibly there's more than one. I don't want to give too much away, and I'm also discussing investigating that kind of situation and how the authorities would try and turn a blind eye as long as they could because it's too difficult. Flavia Albia weighs in and solves it of course. Flavia is always saying to other characters don't call me Flavia (laughs) and it happens a lot in the Grove of the Caesars. For people who don't know what the ancient Rome was yes why is that something that irritates her? It irritates her because it partly it irritates me. Her name in that when she was first introduced as a character was Albia. I didn't know then she was going to become my my next serious character but she was in quite a few of the Falco books and her name was Albia but she had been as you say found in Britain she'd been an abandoned baby in the Boudicca revolt I don't know whether we think this is actually feasible but this is the story that she was found in the, the ruins of blazing Londinium and picked up by some people because she was a miracle baby alive and brought up horribly And then Falco and Helena do decide to save her from that horrible life. And they equip her with proper citizenship. She may may very well have had it all along. We simply don't know. Um, And one of the things that happened in the provinces 
or if you were a freed slave too, was that you were given two names as a woman. And if you only had one, the other name you'd be given would be the surname of the reigning emperor. That's why she's called Flavia. And because Falco and Helena and Albia herself despise emperors, that irritates her for that reason. But to be honest, Jenny, the real reason she keeps saying it is that her name is Albia. It is the Albia series. But in America, they have decided to call her Flavia all the time. (laughs) And so when she says, don't call me Flavia, that's me saying it to them. (laughs) I love the way that you do manage to get your own way in these. That must have been something you learned as a civil servant. (laughs) Yes. And the good thing about writing a series is you've you've always got the last word. If anybody says anything about anything, you can write a, another book and put in something different. <laughs> Look, in The Pandora Boy, which is book seven, Flavia mm-hmm. Albia deals with the Emperor Domitian. And you yes. say about him that he was a paranoid despot who liked to be in control and that you realised when you were writing the book that you were a little bit like that too. Tell us about that discovery. Well, yes. Um, before I actually wrote the Albia series, when I finished the Falco series, I was changing publishers along with my editor. And the new people obviously wanted more Falco. But I felt I'd done enough of that. And we compromised. I, I wrote a straight Roman novel, a bit in the way that I'd done The Course of Honour about Vespasian. And I I wrote a novel about the reign of the Emperor Domitian, which is full of really good things to write because he did various naughty things that are really good fun to write. And in the end, he's assassinated. And I love the assassination because it's it's organised by, in effect, a committee of civil servants. And as an ex-civil servant, that that brings me great joy. It's done for the good of Rome, not not because there is somebody else coming up who wants the job, which is normally what happens when a ruler is assassinated. In fact, nobody would take the job. They had to go around begging people to be the next emperor, which is all good fun. He's very dark. There are reasons which in Master and God I try to explain law why he became paranoid and I think he's a very interesting character in in that respect but he is the most powerful man in the world and he lets it go to his head Um, master and god is called that because that was a title he liked even though to call yourself a god when you were alive was was really reprehensible in ancient Rome and He makes a good dark background to the Albia series, which is different from the benign Emperor Vespasian making the trains run on time that we had in Falco. So it's one of several things that are different. You've mentioned that, obviously, she's a woman, and also she comes from Britain, so she can view Roman society and Roman traditions as an outsider, which I very much enjoyed it. Was it Domitian? Forgive my ignorance about the um, empress, but he was Vespasian's son, wasn't he? He was, yes. Vespasian, I didn't even know this when I started, so I I will tell you honestly. Vespasian was the one who built the Colosseum. And he became emperor after a period of turmoil, partly because he had two adult sons, Titus, Domitian. Titus is the one who appears in various rather strange operas. He was only emperor very briefly 
and possibly was murdered by his brother, the paranoid despotic Domitian. Domitian then ruled for about 14 years, so we got quite a lot of Domitian doing horrible things to people. It's interesting that Vespasian is sort of seen as the good emperor and yeah. that he has a son like that. Well, he he has two sons, and I think part of Domitian's trouble is that he was 10 years junior to Titus, and Titus was very close to his father, almost a co-ruler with him, and Titus was very charismatic and everybody loved him. So poor old Domitian, I think, felt deeply neglected and, and had a lot to live up to, and for many years must have thought if Titus had children, he, he was never going to be, be emperor himself. So once he was, it, it totally went to his head and he was full of glee and yet seemed unable to enjoy it. Mm. You've been credited with bringing ancient Rome to life and the exchanges between the characters are very real, but you are meticulous about the historical part of it, aren't you? I, I'm always meticulous as a historical novelist because I can't see the point in doing it unless you try to give as good a picture as you can of how things really were. Otherwise, you might as well write, write fantasy or science fiction. But if you're writing a historical novel, I think the, the for me, this doesn't apply to all authors who do it, but for me, the aim is to show what it was like as much as we can. We, we can't ever really know what it was like to be a Roman 2,000 years ago, but... I think we can use as much evidence as there is and apply imagination where there are gaps. When people believe that ancient Rome was as I say it was, that's, that's really something I'm, I'm desperately proud of. I gather you get good re feedback from your readers on this aspect of things. I do. There was a time when they used to write and tell me what I'd got wrong, but by, by being very stroppy with them, I think I've, I've managed to get shot of all of those or most of those. And now I just get the ones who enjoy it. <laughs> maybe you've got better. <laughs> or maybe I've got better at dodging the problem issues, yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I always think it's very sad when people read a novel in order to find if there are any mistakes in it. Hmm. Surely the idea is to be absorbed into that world and carried along with it and not mind if there's one or two things you disagree with. A lot of people who point out mistakes are actually not right. And that's always good fun to reply to. <laughs> Your first book was The Course of Honour um, and it was about the Emperor Vespasian's love, the, the love story of his life. Tell us about the genesis of that book. I think it was one of, well, as I say, the first that you wrote, but it certainly wasn't yeah. the first you published, was it? No, it wasn't. It's, it's as a publishing story, this is quite interesting. I, I wrote it when I was desperate for a subject that would find a publisher and I decided to try Ancient Rome. And it's a straight historical novel. It is the story of his rise as emperor, but seen through the eyes of his mistress, with whom he had a relationship that swings to and fro. But I think basically it is true love. And so it's a, a three Kleenex box <laughs> novel. 
And as I was writing it, I think that's when I became confident. I knew the material very well. I understood the material for two reasons. One was that Kindness had a job. She's one of the few Roman women we know who had a job. She was the secretary to the Emperor Claudius's mother, Antonia. And so she worked in a kind of yes minister office, the same as I had done as a civil servant. So I knew that I could write her story through her eyes. And the other thing is, it is the most wonderful romance, romantic story. And, and I am, I think, at heart, a romantic novelist. So when, when the two things came together, I knew how that book should be written. And I think it shows. It didn't find a publisher for a long time, purely because publishers are very scary people and they, they didn't want the Romans. They thought the public couldn't cope with the Romans. We, we now know that that is utterly ludicrous. And in the end, it was published 10 years after I'd been writing Falco and disguised as a Falco, in fact, in its first edition. But it's still, it's still much loved by many people. And it was my mum's favourite. It's lovely. It's just, it's a midlife story because they have a, a relationship as young people and then they get back together in midlife. And I wonder if one of the things that kind of put the publishers off was that it was oh, old people. <laughs> well, it might have been. It might have been. I used to say that I cursed Prince Charles and Camilla because originally I was able to say how rare it was for a man to go back to the girlfriend he'd had in his 20s and take up with her, for her to take him back. But then, of course, Charles and Camilla proved that that's not, not as rare as you think and spoiled my story. I don't know. I'm now viewing it from as a much older woman, and I can't see why anybody would not think that was perfectly okay. <laughs> it's lovely. Look, you've mentioned your passion for the Civil War period, the English Civil yeah. War period, and you have written a Civil War saga called Rebels and Traitors. I, I know you're very proud of this book, but once again, the Civil War period is one that still hasn't quite managed to find its place. No, I I can see why in some ways, because it, it was absolutely horrible for the people involved in it. It was like the sort of things that are going on in the Middle East now. And, and that's, that doesn't suit romantic novels. It doesn't altogether suit crime-type stories, though people have attempted it. The background of what's going on is just so horrible. I think it's very interesting because I come from a very left-wing family, so I think that the issues involved in it are, are not only very important, but also very interesting to write and read about. It was one of the things that I learned, though, when I was trying to become a writer, which was that politics aren't allowed, really, in novels very easily. Certainly not popular fiction, certainly not romantic fiction. And that was why it was very hard to get published, writing the sort of things I wanted to do. When, when it was eventually published... It didn't get much critical notice and it is amazing that it is still being read and in a way it's having a new life. People find it and then write to me and say how extraordinary a book it is. I, I am very proud of it. Mm, mm. But it is very long. One lady did say that it fell off the bedhead, hit her husband on the head and he claimed it gave him concussion. It's that size of a book. <laughs> 
Oh dear, you sound like you've got readers who've got a good sense of humour as well. Oh, I do, yes. I'm, I've, I think my readers are particularly nice, though maybe all authors think that, but I, I'm convinced it's true in my case. In the Falco Official Companion, which in its own right is a wonderful book, it's a, a, a full kind of background to, to all of the life, the times, the characters in the Falco series. But And you have a wonderful introduction where you talk quite a lot about your own personal circumstances, where your family came from, that kind of thing. You say traumatic family events underlie your work and in any discussion of my work, this is a defining issue. I wonder if you could just expand a little on that. I, I don't want it to sound as though it's a triumph over tragedy thing, but what I really meant, I think, is that that my life was such that I didn't get conventionally married and have children as I might want to have expected. And I think if I had, I wouldn't have been able to be a writer, certainly, certainly not while I was a civil servant. And even afterwards, I wouldn't have had the scope to do what I did, perhaps rather selfishly as a sometimes single person, and certainly after my partner died, I'm completely on my own. I can do whatever I want. I don't even now have to worry about children, and it would be also probably grandchildren. I, I am free to write. That's what I meant by that. Mm. Um, yes, the first five years of your writing life, you actually were quite sacrificial, weren't they? You weren't very well um, off. You struggled away there, almost the writer in the garret kind of idea. Yes, I I left my job as a civil servant thinking I would have a proper job again, because you have to. Then I decided to become a writer and I lived partly on my savings and part partly on part-time work while I tried to be a writer thinking it's now or never. I've either got to give up this idea that it would be good to be a writer or, or I've got to buckle down and try it and see if I can get published. And, and for, it did indeed take me five years. And if I'd known at the beginning it was going to take five years, I, I still wonder whether I would have tackled it. On the other hand, I was so happy to have left the civil service under Margaret Thatcher's regime that uh, I might have anyway. Mm. And in the end, it worked. And in the end, it became a kind of fairy story. Yes. And so the fairy story turned into a career where you've been awarded many honours as an author, including recognition from the Italian government. Now, I just wondered if there is one of those or, or even a couple that stand out for you in terms of the pleasure that you receive from it. There have to be two, because one of them is the Cartier Diamond Dagger which is awarded in the crime writing fraternity by your peers. So it's it's your fellow writers who know how to do the job, by definition, who, who vote you into it. So I'm very proud of that. But, of course, the Premier, Premier Coliseo, which I can show you, if you look just on top of my finger, if we're having a video, that was given to me by a foreign country and any award from a foreign country has got to mean a lot to you. But I, what I say is that how rare it would be for an English city to award 
a prize, a major prize to an Italian or other foreign writer because they'd written about an English city. And so I view that as one of the most moving things that has ever happened to me, really. Very, very proud. It's wonderful. But you write jokingly in the Falco official companion that anyone planning to be a writer should start before they were born and plan to be blonde, stay young and be photogenic or write in their 80s, which carries risks and leads to a short career. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, that's that's how you get published rather than, I think, I think the ideal age to be a writer is 35 because you've lived enough to have material and you're mature enough to actually write strongly. We shall soon see whether I can write in my 80s because I'm inexorably plodding towards it. <laughs> and I know you've got some work to do yet. You yeah. also have been a regular tour leader to tours in Italy with readers and, and possibly non-readers who are just interested to have the wealth of your knowledge about these places. But the pandemic is changing that. How has the pandemic affected you? Well, I, it's it's very bad in Britain generally, and I have underlying health things. Apart from my age, I'm I'm in the seventies bracket, so I've been in lockdown, and I've not this year travelled anywhere at all. It's probably the first year since I was in my teens that I've not gone anywhere abroad at all. Usually, I would go to Italy three or four times, maybe maybe more even sometimes. So not to go is a huge change in my life. And as things are, I can't see when I'll be able to resume the life I thought I was always going to have. So mm. that's, that's a bit of a stress. Though on the other hand, for a writer to be in lockdown is actually just like normal life when you're writing a book. Tell me, did you go to Italy before you started writing Falkai? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was made to go. When my, my editor, as he became, and I've, I've always had the same one, when he was considering taking two Falco novels, he made it a condition that I had to go because I always tease him. He published a novel set in Moscow that had a lot of mistakes. So when he found out I'd never actually been to it, he said I had to go as a condition of the contract. And that forced me to take up the life of constantly visiting Italy. This year, he came with me on one of the tours that I do. In fact, he came on two. He came on one to Naples and then one to Rome as well. And so after 30 years, we both were there together. And that, that was extremely good fun. How gorgeous. And that first trip that you made, what was the impact did you That's immediately important. like it or? Yes, I immediately liked it. I feel, I, I don't actually speak Italian even after all these years, but I do feel very much at home there to the extent that when I first went to New York, I felt at home in New York because it was like an Italian city. <laughs> um, no, I loved it. And I, I love both the Bay of Naples area with its wonderful archaeology and breathtaking scenery and that terrible hint that one day Vesuvius might explode again while you're there and I love Rome too. It's gorgeous. Look turning to Lindsay as reader because this is the joys of binge reading and obviously yes. you've spent a lot of time in your life reading. Tell us about what you like to read, what your taste in books is. 
the, the sad thing about being a writer is that that's, that's your job, you do it all day. And so when you want recreation, you tend not to read as much as you once would have done. I grew up reading a lot and I was a binge reader. I, I read series, things like Hornblower. And the day I was sent to the library by myself and came back with three Biggles books and read them all in a day, that was, that was my kind of binge reading. If I, if I was to suggest something that has meant a lot to me as a writer, I would say, how about Rosemary Sutcliffe, who writes for children, but also adults can read her. And she introduced me both to the Romans and the English Civil War. She wrote, she wrote about both. So I owe her a huge debt. Other than that, I think Part of the joy of reading for me is to find things out for yourself. I never liked being told what to read. So I'm not going to tell you either. You go in a bookshop, go online and pick up something thinking, I wonder whether I'll like that. That's, that's the magic of reading when you find you do. And if you find you don't like it, throw it across the room because there's far too many books to bother with things that are hard or horrible to read. Yes, that's right. I've, I used to feel compelled to finish books, but now I must yeah. admit that I don't feel that compulsion any longer. No, I lost three years of my life when I was trying to read Don Quixote, and I believed that you had to finish. I remember absolutely nothing about it, so I could have been <laughs> reading things that would have been much more enjoyable. Look, circling around and looking down the tunnel of time, because we are coming to the end, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again... Would you change anything? The thing I would change, this is going to surprise you, I, I wouldn't write under my own name. Oh, really? I, I, would have a, I would have a non-diplume so that I could go around the world incognito. It's, it's particularly difficult if I do what I like to do on holiday, which is go on archaeological tours, and, and I can no longer be myself. I have to be the working author, who is a slightly different person from me how I am myself. Oh, that's interesting, yes. In what ways is, it, is she different? She wears a suit and is authoritative, whereas <laughs> I am slobby and silly. <laughs> so you've mentioned, I think, that you're engaged with the Flavia series. Whereabouts are you up to and what are your projects for the next 12 months or so? <laughs> Well, I have actually, although we've been talking about the Grove of the Caesars, I've written a whole extra book on top of that. So I've, I've written book nine. It's with my editor when he bothers to read it. And I will be thinking, I am thinking about book 10. I have a contract for 10 and 11. And I have, as my business plan, the idea that I will try to write, as I did 20 Falcos, I'll try and write 20 Albias but I will be well into my 80s by then. So we, we can just watch it one book at a time and see whether I get it. That's wonderful. You've already mentioned that England's got a wonderful tradition of very talented women writers in their 80s. They, they are in my mind all the time these days, <laughs> <laughs> along with the terrible fear, because I have seen one or two of them go off, the terrible fear that I'll go off and nobody will dare to tell me because I've been writing for so long but we'll see. Now I think you've had a, a website since 1986 so I presume that your readers can find you online. Um, yes yeah, so they go to my website and if they email me I will certainly read it 
And if you're very lucky, I'll answer you, though I did answer one recently that was a year old, to the astonishment and joy of the person who'd written in. <laughs> so that's a little warning. We'll put all of those links in the in the podcast show notes that we publish online. So they'll be they'll be there forevermore. Thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show, Lindsay. It's been fantastic talking. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to New Zealand. I think it's the first time, so I'm really pleased. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.